Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest today is Ruth Ann Robbins, Distinguished Clinical Professor of Law at Rutgers Law School. We will discuss her 20, 2004 article, Painting with Print, and her 2010 follow-up, Conserving the Canvas. So welcome to the podcast, Ruthanne. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's great to have you. So I was wondering if you could start um, by just telling listeners what you mean by Painting with Print. Because I really, I love that title, and I think it conveys both the subject matter of the article, but also does it in kind of a poetic way that that encapsulates the point that you're trying to make. Um, so there are two types of pathos that people really don't parse most of the time. This is uh, something that Professor Michael Smith at Wyoming has really taught a lot of the rhetoric people in legal education, and that's the traditional form of pathos, um, the substance of making people feel a particular emotion. But there's the second half, which he calls medium mood control, which is the look and feel and tone of the communication. And so the idea of painting with print is that what our documents look like actually convey an ethos and also help the audience um, access the substance of the communication. And that's not something that attorneys have paid a lot of attention to or didn't weren't paying as much attention to in 2004 when uh, the article was published. Yeah, you know, one thing that really struck me was that as a law student, as an attorney, and as a law professor, I feel like so much of the kind of the format of the writing we do is dictated by rules generated by third parties or by institutions. And we just follow the rules without asking why they're the rules. And and your paper was so interesting at getting at sort of how to improve the rules for formatting in order to achieve the actual goals of the legal writing you're doing. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit about sort of why you see that or how you see that working? Well, first, the rules that I think govern a lot of certainly litigators um, are the rules of appellate advocacy. So there aren't necessarily the same kinds of rigid strictures on what we're doing with our documents. We're talking about internal documents or um, trial level documents or contracts or that sort of thing. There might be some norms, but it's not governed quite as tightly. And yet we seem to borrow from these appellate rules and use them for everything without thinking about the strategy of what you're trying to convey with the look of the document, as well as the substance of the document. And um, a lot of what I was trying to explain in the article was simply that there's a whole group of people out there who have studied this. There are Microsoft has studied this. Um, graphic designers study this for a living, and yet we're not paying attention in the way that we ought to be paying attention. And so, some of what I was trying to do is just give some overarching principles to think about. Right. So. My reading of your paper at, at, at kind of the, mm-hmm. the broadest level was that in a sense, what you're saying is we should be optimizing for this set of goals when it comes to thinking about formatting uh, an article, what, an, what, what a document should look like. Mm-hmm. So what, what are those goals you think we should be optimizing for? 
Well, the, the, the biggest thing in law is always, what does the organization of our analysis look like? And if you want the organization to pop out, you've really got to show it in chunks. Uh, and so some of the, the conventions that we've traditionally used, which is double spacing everything, including headings, um, or having you know the text just float away from the headings doesn't really show the organization of the of the analysis as well as it could. So one of the big takeaways really should be what's the relationship of a heading to the text that it's modifying? And okay, yeah, yeah. So okay, so so <laughs> let us in on the secret. We want to know. <laughs> so the, the, okay, so the secret to a heading is first, um, there's the hierarchy of what kind of a heading is this. And if you center a heading, we, we really have no sense of hierarchy. It doesn't comport with what we've learned about outlining. So I would get say get rid of that centered headings um, for starters. But the other main thing about a heading is it's supposed to, to provide contrast to the actual text. And the way to provide contrast that doesn't interfere with readability is through light and dark. Make your headings darker. You don't have to do a contrast with all caps. You can do it simply by making it boldface or larger. Right, right. So that was one key recommendation that I took away from the heading section as well was to not use all caps. Why is that? All caps are not as readable. I mean, there's. I've had some debates with other people who are probably much better at typography than I am about exactly what goes wrong with the reading. Um in the article, I talk about how it, it the letters don't have shapes when it's all caps. It's just, you look at words and draw lines around, you're just going to get a series of rectangles, as opposed to the ascenders and descenders of letters when they're in um, lowercase. So uh, we've been taught to read in sentence case. Most of what we read is in lowercase letters. And so if you want a heading to be read, and you do, because that's one of the key persuasion pressure points of a document, you want to put it in the most comfortable reading form we have, which is sentence case. Yeah, right. That makes a lot of sense. And one of the things I thought was really effective that you did in the article was demonstrating the points or the arguments that you were making within the text itself. So maybe you could talk about how you did that in the case of you know showing people why they shouldn't use all caps. <clears throat> it's a funny story of how that ended up in the article was I was in my, you know, my final, final, final draft. And my husband, who is a corporate attorney, looked it over and said, yeah, I don't actually see the problem. Why don't you actually show an example? So in the final, final, final sub A draft, um, I reproduced the same paragraph in all caps and then in sentence tech, uh, case just to show what the problem was. Yeah, and it was really effective because it like it it drove home to me in a really kind of tangible way just how much more difficult it was to read a paragraph in all caps. And and, and I did exactly as your text said, I kind of skipped over it and went on to the next paragraph. Yeah, which we also which we also do with blog quotes. Um yeah, so uh, we often tell our students show don't tell it became obvious to me that i needed to show rather than just tell so that's that's why it's in there mm-hmm. and you know when i say to people you know i say how many of you skip over all caps how many of you skip over block quotes and i will raise my hand first so that people don't feel sheepish because a lot of people have guilt that they just want to ignore it but that's actually the teachable moment of right if everybody wants to ignore it, but that's where your key points are, 
and make no mistake, a heading is a is where the persuasion really happens. That in the first sentence of that section, you got to make it count. You got to make it visible. Yeah, you're actually like deliver almost like inadvertently making your making the persuasive power of your legal document weaker just by the way that you're formatting it. And it really drives home how that's the case. Uh, so in <clears throat> there are many rules about how um, in certain consumer contracts, certain language has to be presented in a way that jumps out at the consumer. And a lot of companies knowing this will put it in all caps saying, look, we complied with the law, but uh, knowing that nobody's really going to read it. Wow. So I, I guess the cynic might ask, do you think they're, do you think the companies are like sort of gaming it even one step further down the line, knowing that if they put it in all caps, people won't read it? Uh, that's been explored in other scholarship. And I think the answer is yes. Uh, not every company, obviously, because a lot of companies are just going to do what they've always seen done by other companies. Right. Right. But that's sort of just such a funny, like, to follow the letter of the rule mm-hmm. intending you intending for you to emphasize something, knowing that it's actually going to de-emphasize it in practice is Which, sort of, yes. <laughs> very funny. So you, you also make some really, I, I think, interesting points about font choices and sort of how using fonts in legal documents or any document, but in particular in legal documents can affect the readability and effectiveness of the document. Maybe you could talk a little bit about fonts because I think a lot of, a lot of lawyers don't always, don't always think that hard about typography. So um, the reason this project started in the first place is because of what was then the New Jersey court rules, which required all appellate briefs to appear in Courier or Courier New, which is a typeface that looks like um, typewriters and is, is hard to read. And I once calculated for some appellate judges how much more time they spend reading each week because of their typeface choice. So and it, and it also kills more paper as well because it's wider, but it's it's harder to read. There've been um, a series of studies by educational psychologists done mostly in the 1930s and 40s that talk about which types of typefaces are easier to read or harder to read. And the medium at the time was all paper. Now we've got Microsoft dumping hundreds of thousands of dollars into research of what projected typeface should look like, and so with this kind of science there's some obvious things that you want to do with your longer documents um, and some things you want to avoid. Now, every, if you are writing a document that you don't necessarily want people to pay as much attention to, you can do the opposite. Um, there's also certain typefaces just have a look and feel to them uh, and convey certain tones. Something like Times New Roman, which is everybody's default for printed paper is really the absence of strategy. And Matthew Butterick, who writes a wonderful book and um, also website called Typography for Lawyers, talks about how Times New Roman is the absence of choice. It's the abdication of choice. Right. So what makes a particular typeface more or less readable? Uh, So in print... The science seems to show that serif fonts, and those are the types of typefaces that have um, the little doohickeys at the bottoms of letters, help your eye glide from one letter 
to the next. And the science, I'm going to say the science is not perfect on that. Whereas in projected font on your screen, or if you're doing a PowerPoint or something like that, you'll want um, a sans serif, the cleaner Helvetica or Arial type of a look because it just projects cleaner. That said, modern typography um, has been working on what kind of serif typefaces can be projected with clarity. And so when Microsoft came out with their C fonts several years ago, several of them were designed to work both projected and print formats. Right. You also talk some about the relationship between the letters Mm -hmm. and how that could affect both the legibility and the sort of the amount of space In that a font takes up? So, <clears throat> again, we are used to reading um, books, magazines, professionally printed documents where they've thought very hard about how close should the letters be to each other to be readable. And so most of what we read are proportional fonts where the an O is wider than an I and a W is the widest letter of all. When we had typewriters... Um, Everything was set on a, a piece of metal, and you know a typewriter works like a piano, where you strike something with a metal bar. Um, so everything was the same proportion, so a monospaced. It's easier to read proportionally spaced typefaces, and so, right. but there's yeah. but some of them are more narrow than others. So something like Times New Roman is actually designed to be read in narrow columns. It was designed for the London Times. Right. <clears throat> yeah, and your comments about about line length were really interesting as well, especially because you pointed out that like some legal information services like like Westlaw and whatnot actually provide documents in a dual column format. Do you think they do that because it's easier to read, or what's the what's the what's the reasoning? Uh, because it's easier to read, so <coughs> you know they're very smart about it and. You know, not quite as much anymore, but, you know, I always had, when I, not now, I have to say this because I work with representatives from both organizations, but when I was in law school, um, I preferred Westlaw printouts because of that dual column. It, it actually, your eyes are just able to see it with your peripheral vision. You don't have to turn your head. And, yeah. right, and let me ask you, would you rather read a reprint of someone's article or would you rather get it from SSRN where it's all going to come out in wit, you know, wide? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, it's always so much easier to read articles once they've been formatted. Although I guess in the case of law review articles, the thing that's most bothersome to me is that, you know, you only get two or three lines of text and then a whole bunch of footnotes. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. But, uh, well, the reason, yeah. but the reason why you don't like that is the same reason why it's you know we prefer the narrower columns, and that's because your head doesn't have to turn um, mm-hmm. when you're reading those columns. Your eyes are just straight on, and you're reading you know up down. When you have to jump to footnotes and back up, your eyes or your head have to move, and you're you're losing bits of information as you're doing that. You're losing concentration. It's the same way if you're reading something very wide. And that how I do this, when I visually show it is I ask people to put their two hands in front of their face and read a line, you know, pretend you're reading dual column, and then bring your hands out as if you're reading a whole line on a piece of paper. And you'll see that your eyes are doing more work. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, why do you think courts were insisting on these hard to read antiquated fonts like, like Courier? And h- how do you get courts and other institutions to think about principles of legal document design in order just to benefit themselves by making things easier to read? Well, <clears throat> the first part of your question, the reason why they were using courier or the reason why they were using double space is because they fell into the pattern of, you know, this is what we did in high school or this is what we've always done. And so how do you get them to change? Well, you have key people who are judges who actually care about this stuff starting to make the changes. And, you know, Judge Easterbrook of the Seventh Circuit really, really cares about typography and document design. So the Seventh Circuit was a leader in making some changes. Yeah. So you had an interesting relationship with the Seventh Circuit. Uh, Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because I think it's really cool. Um, So the article was published in uh, 2004 in um, volume two of what was then called J. Alwood. And this was actually the, the volume two was the first volume of this new format of this new journal. Um, And I had not seen it in print yet. Uh, It went from West to East, the mail. And I was, it was late October. um, And I received an email from judge Easterbrook and I was only almost, only half paying attention to this because it was also Halloween or the day before Halloween, I was dressing up my young children and getting ready for the Halloween parades. And so I was only half paying attention to the email when it came in and judge Easterbrook had said, I just read your article. I very much like your article. I'd like to put it on the homepage of the seventh circuit's website. Do you mind? (laughs) And I was like, oh, I'm so busy because I've got little Dorothy here and I've got to braid her hair. Um, I'm going to forward this to the editor-in-chief of the journal, who herself is a professor, and say, like, what do you think? And I also forwarded it to my husband saying, well, this is interesting. I guess the article is out. And he immediately called me and said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, stop. With, stop with the Halloween. Yeah. So I, I, I almost blew my 15 minutes of fame. <laughs> That's amazing. Is it still up on the on the website? They changed their website in 2016, but from 2004 until 2016, it was there. That's so cool. I bet you got a lot of readers that way. I did. And they also were kind enough to cite me in their manual on typography. And I still think that I'm cited in the manual. I just want to put another plug in again for Matthew Butterick, who has this website, because He's a lawyer who is also a Harvard-trained typographer, and truly he has a lot of information. Um, and, and I was doing this because the New Jersey courts would not listen to my letters of, you know, your rules are pretty antiquated. Mm. And one of them actually said, don't you have anything better to do with your time? I was like, no, I'm a law professor. I really don't. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, and in a weird way, I feel like the response to that is, of course I do. And if you were to follow these rules, I'd have more of it to do something better with. Right. 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 (laughs) Well, maybe we could talk a little bit about your follow-up article, uh, conserving the canvas as well, which, uh, was delightful to read, very funny uh, article, um, but also made, I think, some really interesting points. So maybe just talk a little bit about the argument you were making in that article. So that 
argument was actually in response to the New Jersey courts telling me, like, thanks for publishing that article. It's nice that the Seventh Circuit likes it, but we still don't care. Uh, they were really who I was trying to persuade. Um, and I thought, well, I'll, I'll go a different route. And I was a Girl Scout troop leader at the time. I will go the, the route of conservation, which is, of course, also the route of saving money. But it was actually easier to calculate what, you know, how we could have a positive impact on our paper use rather than how much money would we save? There's just too many variables with that. So it was what kind of an impact are we having um, with the court rules that are requiring the documents to have double spacing and only single-sided printing and a certain number of copies and even the typeface choices. Right. Right. And so what did you find? (laughs) <laughs> what were your recommend what were your recommendations and how much were the savings? So well, obviously the first big saving and and I'm gonna take the position that I know that people are doing electronic filing and obviously that's gonna save a lot of money, except that readability of documents that large, it's just not there yet for uh, documents like that that we're gonna read on screen. And and I suspect that except in a a few chambers where they've gone completely paperless, they still want courtesy copies or they're printing them out. Mm-hmm. So I mean, the first big change, assuming you're still going to have paper copies, um, would be to have double-sided printing. That just feels like a no-brainer. And you know, double-sided printing is a problem for reading if you only staple in the corner because of there's not a smooth transition between the pages. If you if you just staple twice on the side or three times, so it's a little book, it it actually acts like a book, and we do read on both sides of the page of a book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Perfectly normal, and the double spacing too. I mean, honestly, I really hate double spacing, and I, I can't stand it when people do that. Double spacing is an artifact of the MLA, which is an artifact of um, all of the uh, humanities that are requiring it. And as I as I say in the article. I can't find a source for this, but I'm pretty sure it has to do with all of the comments that professors want to put on their students' writing. Or it's because they mistakenly think that it's easier to read in double spacing, and it isn't. It's actually easiest to read if it's in um, 120% of whatever the line width is. So, or rather the the size of the font. So if it's a 12-point font, 120% is going to bring it up to a 14-point of space yeah 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 and then eliminating courier geez i mean i i kind of tell you like when i was clerking they would insist on that Mm -hmm. too and it just it just never made any sense to me it's like why do you why are you insisting on all these documents looking as if i had typed them up on my selectric yeah i I think it's because i think the pushback i was getting in the early years was but i'm not used to it and the I'm not used to it was overriding, okay, but scientifically, like I can show you the science that says it's harder to read, and I can show you the science that says you're also killing more trees, and you're killing a lot more trees because Courier is 30% wider than a lot of the other typefaces that we're used to using. Um, and there, But it's that I'm just not used to it will override a lot of, of the other logic. Yeah, so this will maybe transition to something that <clears throat> that I wanted to ask you about because you know, as a law professor at this point, 
I end up reading a lot more law review articles mm-hmm. than I read court, court documents anymore. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I'm not used to it. This is how it's always been done, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I hear that always in the voice of a law review editor, right? Because they are inveterate uh, slaves to the, that's how it's always been done yeah. logic. And I was wondering if you had any thoughts that might be applicable to um, document design for for law review editors and for law reviews. I think that there's also a law review article um, out there about this. And I know pining is in the, the um, it might be pining for sustainability or something like that, that mm. came out around 2010 also. Um, so actually the journal that I published both of these in made changes based on painting with print, which is that some of the uh, footnotes are now dual columned. If they're short enough, you know, if it's just it, 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 there's no reason to just have lot. You could have dual columns of those. Yeah. And they also changed, they went to a professional designer and said, what are the changes? And the professional designer gave them some topography choices and some other things that could be done to make law review articles easier to read. And so if you um, ever look at what it's now called legal communication and rhetoric, Jay Alwood, it's spaced a little wider than your typical law review. It's not in Times New Roman and the footnotes are different. Right. Right. Do you have other thoughts about things that law review editors might do to make the process run more run more smoothly or, or ideas about things that maybe other journals are typically not doing. I mean, the double spacing thing is one that's hit me up a couple times with, you know, law review editors actually reformatting my document into like a double space format before sending it back to me in track changes. I, I, <laughs> you know, that's yeah, amazing. Um, so, you know, actually I think one of the biggest things that professors can do besides writing shorter articles, which of course save space is, modeling by have by showing because the students are the editors show them model for them what do your exams look like what do you what are the rules for submitting papers to you if that's what they're used to their own rules are going to start looking a little silly nobody likes double spacing yeah yeah no that's i i i hear you and it's uh, so much of it is about i mean i feel like the the student editors are so much like the judges who you're describing mm-hmm. where <clears throat> they adhere to these rules because they're rules without asking what the rules are for, yes. right? It's like the rules are not there because they're good in of themselves. They're just ways to make sure that everyone's doing things the same way. But if everyone's doing things the same way poorly, that's not benefiting anyone. So with my own students, I mean, I say to them, you're not allowed to submit any document, double space, Times New Roman, and I don't want to see any all caps and headings. And so right away, your document will be returned to you. It might be late. And I know that sounds ridiculous, but I just want you to start thinking about the look of the document in the same analytical way you think about how you're going to present the facts of of your client's case. So Mm -hmm. it's just part of the overarching strategy of being an attorney like art and to the place where you work do they have a certain look and feel that they want you to subscribe to or is it that you're going to say well this is my client is has a particular um ethos and therefore uh, my document should reflect that on behalf of my client 
Yeah. Have have any of your thoughts changed since you wrote the original article? Um, I mean, if you were to rewrite it or kind of do a revision of it today, would would everything be the same, or were there th- are there things that you would like maybe say differently, or uh, arguments that you might add that weren't in the original? Uh, yes. So when I go back and look at it, I I kind of shudder of Ugh, I can't stand the the two typefaces I used together, and and I've said to you that I look at the article, like I look at my junior prom dress going, well, I'd make a different choice today. I don't know if I would do pink satin. Um, But um, so, you know, I corrected course a bit in 2010 with some of the typography. Uh, 2004, I was just using what everybody was using at the time. I don't necessarily use sans serif headings for more contrast than, you know, and then serif typeface for the text. I typically use the same because it's just so hard to match them. You really have to be a typographer and look at, are the O's rounded the same way? Does the the bar of the E, is it straight or is it diagonal? What does the G look like? Things that typographers know to look for. It's just hard for us to be that exacting. So mm-hmm. my headings are now larger in boldface as opposed to some other font. Uh, so that's the first thing I would say is, look, if you don't want to do it, this way you could do it this other way. Um, I would talk more about grayscale when you want to, um, in certain ways, the norms of when we use bullet points, for example, everybody makes their bullets dark black. Why? We're just trying to show it's a list, make them gray so that it's not actually calling attention. Same with page numbers. I know these are little things and they sound nitpicky, but it actually makes the document look more professional that way. Right. Right. Oh, that's cool. I hadn't thought about that. Like it's not actually something you want to emphasize necessarily. So you can de-emphasize it visually. Mm -hmm. It's there if you need it, but really all your, with a bullet pointed list, you're simply showing a list. You don't have to, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that was really the, the thing that, that opened my eyes most about your article was, you know, thinking about the design of a legal document as one more way of communicating information. And that if you don't think about it actively, you're actually making your document less effective. Yes. Well, you're, you're giving up a persuasive opportunity and I now shudder and I teach my students to shudder. Um, If you ever see something on the news where they start the sentence by saying in court filings today, and then they'll have a little graphic of the court filing. And you can see that it's a times new Roman with all caps headings that are centered and underlined. And I just shudder and say, is that what lawyers look like to the world? Because we don't look very good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. No, it's funny. I mean, the way you put it, it's almost like the subtext of that communication is stand, you know, be ready for something really boring. Yes. And I just, we're, you know, you know, in federal documents, um, you know, the, whatever the justice today filed a response and it's the same thing. It's like, how can the justice department make their documents look the same? Where's their logo? Why doesn't this have, you know, the impact of it? This is the United States justice department, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been really, this has been really fascinating. And, you know, I learned a lot reading your article and more. 
talking to you. And I hope listeners will, will check out both of your articles, which are short, fun reads that have a lot of valuable information uh, on how to make your writing more effective. Well, thank you for having me. Times have you seen this happen in your own office? Time wasted. Switch girls frustrated. A client dissatisfied. How often have you heard your Mr. Smith being called over the PA system without effect? Blurred and indistinct loudspeakers cause people to become tone deaf and fail to attract the attention of a busy executive. And conscientious supervisors become too engrossed in their work to notice even coloured lights flashing on a visual call system. The loudspeaker system is not guaranteed to find Mr. Smith, but it is guaranteed to distract everyone else within hearing distance. Well, if all conventional call systems fail to reach Mr. Smith, how do I find him? For instance, if Mr. Smith, a fact manager... Car, there, you can swim immediately. Well, Hartman, I find... No matter where he is, you can reach him in a flare under the arrow. Suppose Mr. Smith is a doctor in a busy hospital. Can I find him there too? Yes, wherever Dr. Smith goes on his rounds, you can speak to him personally without disturbing anyone. There he is in the hospital corridor, going to another ward. That's wonderful. How can you possibly do it? By the fastest possible means, radio paging. In other words, the Westrex Selector Call. The function of this equipment is to provide the means by which a verbal message can be transmitted from a central point to any one of a group of pre-selected individuals. The Westrex Selectical Control Unit, uh, from which the spoken messages are sent, ensures privacy and avoids distracting the attention of those not concerned with the message. The transmitter and aerial coupling unit feed to a loop aerial so laid out as to serve the required area. A receiver is carried by each pre-selected individual. When he is called, the receiver emits a series of warning pips. The message is then received by holding the receiver near the ear and pressing a button. To show you what Selector Call is doing in many organizations throughout the world, here is an Australian example which received wide publicity. At the Royal Alexandra Hospital for Children, a doctor received an emergency call that a small boy of four had developed severe convulsions. In seconds, Selector Call had the doctor on the spot, arranging for oxygen to be swiftly administered. And only ten minutes after the boy was admitted to the hospital, the doctor reported that all was well. Another life saved with Selector Call. 
Why tolerate this frustration in your office, factory, or hospital? Why lose clients, and perhaps lives, by inefficient call systems? Why jangle the nerves of everyone for miles around and distract them from their work? When Selector Call can transmit a verbal message to any one person, anywhere. Selector Call ensures privacy for the message. It is sure and effective in operation and inexpensive to install.